Bicops.info podcast, episode one, Doug Edwards. Welcome to the Spy Cops Info Podcast. My name's Tom Fowler and I'm joined with... Uh, Chris Bryant from the Undercover Research Group. And today we're going to be looking at one of the officers who gave evidence during uh, the first phase, the first tranche of the Undercover Policing Inquiry, Doug Edwards. So Chris, um, you wrote an article, well you've written a a profile on Doug Edwards on the powerbase.info. Who was Doug Edwards? Yeah, so he was um, an undercover officer who infiltrated initially anarchist groups in the east end of London, so from 1968 to mid-1971. The Special Demonstration Squad was formed as a response to the 1968 Grosvenor Square protest against the Vietnam War, um, to partially to infiltrate groups before the second demonstration that year by the same group. But Doug Edwards isn't deployed until after the second Vietnam War demonstration has already happened. Yeah, he was recruited... From he was already a special branch officer um, then, and he was so he was he, he was deployed almost immediately after the October demo. So um, from that we can deduce they had already decided to carry on the squad um, after that and expand its remit to I guess and it all kind of left wing anarchist groups um, and also sort of black power groups. So at this point, the legend-building process hadn't really got to the levels that we knew it would later on. With the the officers we heard from, both in written and oral testimony, um, who basically were deployed between 1968 and 1971, Mm. um, there's certain things which are different from the rest of the SD, the rest of the officers who were deployed after that. Um, That's the Special Demonstration Squad. Special Demonstration Squad. Mm. Um, basically, if you like, their modus operandi hadn't been developed, so certain things which run through the rest of the time the squad operated, say, for instance, the use of a van as a way of inveigling themselves into, into groups using to cart people about for demos and equipment about, that was not... That was not thing between 1968 and 1971 for instance Mm. however there were certain there were quite a few things which did carry on even from that early date well what sort of things well basically the way that they targeted people and groups um they did this by very much like a dragnet approach of all the undercover officers who gave evidence during the first uh tranche the first phase of the first tranche of the inquiry um doug was like the most entertaining wasn't he he was, yeah, mainly to, to, to do with this, this sort of quite old-fashioned, antiquated London past that he used, phrases such as cool blimey and um, sort it all out, and he got a bit tasty. So, um, yeah, so it was yeah. a bit disarming in that way. Yeah, I mean, I think I was quite disarmed at the time. Looking back, I think it seems quite cynical, really, the way in which that he presented himself, um, because... His memory of things, he, it added to his, like, I couldn't really remember, it was so long ago. Yet when it came to anything of particular interest, he was very sure that he couldn't remember. Yeah, for instance, uh, infiltration, there were several reports, at least under his name, um, on, on the Irish Solidarity Campaign, or Civil Rights Solidarity Campaign, as it then was. Uh, and for, for whatever reason, he seemed to be 
very wanted to be very certain he had absolutely nothing to do to do with that. Um, perhaps he was uh, aware of something controversial um, about deployments in that area. Yeah, very selective memory, um, which really worked out in his favour. But whenever we're discussing any of these undercover officers, they are professional liars, mm. uh, and they have good reason at this process to, um, if not outright lie, then create an impression that it is as disarming as possible. Certainly, I found him quite disarming. On a personal level, I would say a lot of his mannerisms did remind me of Marco Jacobs, who was the undercover officer who infiltrated the group I was involved with uh, some 40 years later. Um, yeah, I mean, that's as an aside, really. I don't think there's any sort of depth to it. I mean, yeah, he was kind of an amiable, amiable kind of guy. Um, and it, it, a lot, you know, when he was telling, answering the questions, he kind of, yeah, he did, it, it, it did have like the air of like a, a pub anecdote. Yeah, that I mean, one of the things I think was which is really noticeable, um, and it's something I think we'll 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 always find when we're, we're looking back at people who've given evidence that the um, the written record doesn't give a full impression, full description of, of what it was like. Whilst he was being asked questions, he was often talking at the same time, which obviously isn't recorded. Saying things like "Oh dear, oh dear," <laughs> and you know, breathing in and making. Uh, making sounds and, and, and suggesting that he thought the whole process was quite ridiculous. Um, th th then that really sort of colours the, the reaction that people had to him. If you look back at the live tweets that I was making at the time, um, you know, I played up the comedy because it was, it was really quite funny. You know, people were laughing in the room. Yeah, I mean, against that, um, and just to be clear, um, one of my colleagues, um, Donald, did point out that there were, he was quite quite vague on a lot of details when when he was questions about things things that he, he for whatever reason he wanted to deny it was quite clear that he, he didn't have anything to do with say for instance when he was questioned about um our solidarity campaign he was 100% mm. certain he had absolutely nothing to do with that mm. so you might say you know, yeah you might you might take from that that his sort of aimable, forgetful old man act was a bit slightly a performance. There's no two ways that, that a great amount of it is an act. And I think all the evidence that we hear from undercover officers, we have to remember that they have good reason to lie to us. Yeah, indeed. He sent out, I guess, I mean, he's not really part of a wave of deployments, but if there is a second wave, I guess he is the beginning of that second wave. He's the first officer who's not deployed with the October demonstration in mind, certainly yeah, on yes. ports, yeah. So he sent out and he's sent to Piccadilly Circus to just uh, that's hang right. out? I mean, just to explain a bit, that, uh, I guess most people who know Piccadilly Circus recently think it was a tourist trap. Mm. Um, but back then, sort of, I suppose it was coming to its end as a, a place, a sort of bohemian place where people used to hang out um, it was, it was kind of like on the edge of sort of like Soho, so as a sort of queer and gay centre, alternative place. And there were there, were, there also was around that time a couple of big, a big squatted buildings as well. So um, yeah. So maybe not quite so ridiculous as it as it first seemed when he when he when he said it. Um, but but certainly the police had no. Um, I mean, it, it does suggest the police didn't have enough prior knowledge to send him to into a particular group or after a particular target. It was a very, you were just sent out into the wild. It seems like it. And you, you kind of get, if they did that, it did seem that they even, 
they didn't have much background knowledge, intimate knowledge of anarchist groups in London at that time. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, you can mm. surmise from that. So, I mean, that's largely unsuccessful, him wandering around Piccadilly Circus. Yeah, he, he, he gives up on that and decides he, to start hanging around pubs in the east end of London. Which has probably got a much better track record for finding anarchists. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and, and, and probably Doug probably felt happier sitting in a pub than like just wandering around Piccadilly Circus, you imagine. Right, yeah. So he ends up infiltrating West Ham anarchists. Um, what do we know about West Ham anarchists? N- not a ton. Um, I suppose the most. I suppose if it, if you would have heard them, heard of anything they were involved in at all, there was there was two things. In 1966, they interrupted some um, election hustings, um, and that's recorded for posterity on this strange film called The Hecklers, mm. which you can look up. Um, it's actually a really, it's, it's, it's quite a fun film. It's it not, is quite a fun film. It's not just about the West Ham anarchists. No, it's about, like, the, it's like a, a US art filmmaker making a, a film about the phenomenon of people heckling at political meetings, because apparently that doesn't happen in the States. Right, yeah, whereas in the UK at the time particularly, it was very, very common. And there's, on, on the, um, I think... Tom's going to put the, the screenshot on, but there's a shot of, 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 so I've been told, three of the West Ham anarchists looking very much like mods, which apparently they were. Mm. So, um, Doug Edwards, um, you know, he was he was born in 45, so he would have been a, a, a bit older than, than the, well, he would have been a good five years older than anybody else in the group, from what we've heard. I guess so. I mean, that's, I mean, when we say his date of birth, that's his pseudonym's date of birth. Not his, not the actual officer, whoever we, we assume. Yeah, with all these other covers, generally they use their first, real first name. So I guess his real name is Doug something, but it's not Doug Edwards because it's his cover personality was born uh, on the eighth of August, nineteen forty-five. I'm not sure what that meant or where that came from that date. Um, so. Okay, so um, the, the the group is described as being quite young. Uh, he's probably not that much older then. Yeah. Um, so and what what did he get involved with whilst he was with the West Ham anarchists? Well, he didn't. He went to well, as far as we know, we know for sure is that he went to like a handful of meetings and he went to went to one or two demos, for instance. And he recalls, for instance, he remembered a, a demo outside the South African embassy in Trafalgar Square, um, people crying anarchista and and people throwing objects at the embassy. Um, as he went on to say, it got a bit tasty. They started smashing windows and it was violent and there we are. One of the meetings that's probably should talk about that he goes to um, involves also another people from another group, another anarchist group called East London Libertarians who are a bit better known, at least within the you know, sort of our own anarchist lunchtime anyway. Um, <laughs> and they're involved with a, a much more famous campaign called the Family Squatting Campaign which um, squatted a number of houses in the east end of London for homeless, with homeless families. Um, mm-hmm. And Doug writes about this. And in fact, he had, he, he had full knowledge of this before it happened. Um, All the information we're talking about today, or the vast majority of it, is included in the Powerbase uh, profile of Doug Edwards, alias yeah. Doug Edwards. Um, I'll put the link in the, in the programme notes. Um, but yeah, that that as it stands, that's currently everything we know about Doug Edwards. If there's, you know, if if you if you or your grandparents were in West Ham anarchists um, and think you have something to add, please do get in touch with the Undercover Research Group. Yeah. So one other thing, element we should talk about about the reports on West Ham anarchists is the recording of of seemingly irrelevant um, personal information. Say, for instance, um, 
it's recorded that one of the, the fathers of one of the West Ham anarchists is employed as a motor mechanic, and, a, and another's mother um, sort of um, becomes a Christian. Um, neither you would have thought of any direct um, <laughs> relevance to the special branches remand, but no, but these reports were, were made and kept for you know fifty years. So. Um, and, and, and uh, yeah, and this is one of the things which does continue throughout the SDS's history. The the sort of like the recording of masses of personal information. Um, what what is, could be labelled collateral intrusion, um, but I would say for it to be collateral in, intrusion, it's got to be accidental. Whereas this seems to be deliberate. Yeah, it's a yeah. deliberate methodology which continues, and they just get more and more info on. Not only the people they are supposed to be in inverted commas infiltrating, but also family members. People just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. All yeah, and have um, quite likely have special branch files opened on them. So I mean, this I mean, this sort of thing is something which we definitely know continues for the duration of the existence of the unit. Indeed, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, Doug moves on, um, and he. He agrees with the head of the SDS, Conrad Dixon, um, that, he, that infiltrating these anarchist groups were, was a waste of time, mm. and it was decided that I would join the Independent Labour Party. Now, <clears throat> a very different group. It's a very different group, and whereas I was, as I mentioned, West Ham anarchists, you could say, if you're looking for a justification from the police's point of view, yes, they did sort of commit a minor public order offences and according to Doug, uh, do some graffiti and a bit of criminal damage. Whereas the Independent Labour Party were a wholly, they were a political party who stood candidates wholly unsuccessfully for election. Mm. I mean, um, they stayed uh, even by, they stayed on the, if you like, they stayed well within the law. They were within the electoral system of So, I mean, th th just to say that there's not really um, a modern equivalent of the, of the Independent Labour Party. Um, not long after this, they ended up um, merging back into the Labour Party, which they had split from some time before. Um, but certainly, th they're not a group, though they attended demonstrations, would have been involved in public order in any significant way. Uh, there's a term which Doug Adams refers to, uh, Doug Edwards, sorry, refers to, um, which... I get the impression was something that was, may have been told to him by a senior officer because it totally didn't fit in with any of the rest of his way he spoke. Uh, you reckon? I don't know. It was quite a colloquial term I'd never heard before. But... Um, it's something I've heard before a few times, and yeah. it's, it's quite an old-fashioned sort of terminology. And the, the way that he delivered saying it, it was as if it had been said to him by his senior officer. Uh, a handle to swing. Um, I think a more common phrase that to say it's a horse to ride. Um, it was just that you know he was out in the field. Um, he didn't. Have, he was for whatever reason didn't want to continue being involved with the East London Libertarians or West Ham Anarchists. So he found himself a handle to swing in the Independent Labour Party. Yeah. So when he used that phrase, he he meant at least as he testified fifty years later, more or less. He. I mean, he was pretty clear that the Independent Labour Party were not. A th a threat either in terms of um, subversion or public order, and therefore he purely joined the, the local branch, one of the local branches, the Tower Hamlets branch of the Independent Labour Party, to so gain access to other groups who may have posed a problem. So, um, yeah, that, so that's what he meant by that. It's like a, you know, 
uh, handles the swing. And that's like, if you like, the other kind of collateral intrusion. So you've got, on the one hand, you've got the collateral intrusion of individuals who have got have little or, or nothing to do with, um, how should we put it, um, radical militant political activity. Then you have infiltrations into groups who, even by Doug Edwards' estimation, have had no real public order or subversive threat. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it, it's a... Like you get the impression when you hear him talking about the Independent Labour Party that it was a much more comfortable experience for him than hanging around with the mods. Yes, I mean, as I, I interacted with somebody on Twitter about that, and he and he, and he called Dogs Moving the Independent Labour Party very much a, a pipe and slippers gig. Um, <laughs> they would have been quite a bit older, um, and they definitely would not have been like shouting anarchies and throwing stuff at the South African embassy. Right. So it, it definitely would have been a, a more relaxed. Um, much better dinners. More, I, I mean, yeah. I mean, Doug. Doug talks about them as quite pleasant individuals. You know, um, yeah, um, and you know, people quite people that he got on with okay, despite the clear. Obviously, yeah, in his real real life, he definitely wouldn't have been on on the left. You get the impression, but it's certainly he found them quite affable company. Yeah, yeah. Um... Spoke quite highly of certain individuals within it, as I seem to remember. Um, but there, it was not without incident, his deployment within the ILP. When they were given evidence, there was one event which um, was given a lot more uh, examination than anything else. Yeah, um, and I suppose Doug got quite confused on this issue, which I suppose does lend itself to more, you know, a more genuine... <laughs> Forgetfulness in a sense that so it was the Independent Labour Party had arranged a, de, um, a debate with the National Front, which on the, you know debating with fascists is obviously um, controversial to say the say the least. Right uh, to have them um, on a platform, um, and according to to Doug, um, some members of the then International Socialists, later the Socialist Workers Party, got wind of this and attacked members of the ILP. In a pub with with Doug was that right? Um, it, it, it was. I mean, I, I got quite confused about what you said. I mean, certainly, he was confused by it. Um, but it, it 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 did give rise to like it sounded quite truthful when he started talking about what other undercover officers may or may not have done in that situation. Well, yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm in two minds about that. I, I do a bit of quoting, so to give a bit of colour to the thing, so. Um, he was saying, oh, we were all sitting outside the pub having a pint before the meeting when I, a big swarm of people came in and started punching everybody and sorting it all out. <laughs> given, given another example of his uh, sort of very like old-fashioned uh, London colloquialisms. Um, but so initially he, he got confused and said it was the fascists who attacked, but, in, uh, but he corrected himself um, as per his written statement, it was actually members of the... International Socialists. Now, of course, we don't know if this is true, if International Socialists did indeed attack the Independent Labour Party. We only have Doug's word for it. So, you know, I'm not going to be you know, casting aspersions in that did, I mean, direction. Has it, have we been able to cooperate any of his evidence with... No, I mean, this is the thing. With, where we, with these offices of this era, where we don't have any people who, from the groups themselves who can re remember the undercovers we don't really have much uh way of either corroborating or otherwise what 
the undercover say. So if anybody was around yeah, in if, any of those groups in these days. Yeah, if um, you were if, if you was a young member of the International Socialists attacked the Independent Labour Party for yeah. holding a meeting with the National Front, um, we won't hold it against you. Please get in touch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and as well, yeah, as I say, things like, you know, obviously just to emphasise, you know, I don't believe it's acceptable to, to have a, a, a platform debating with the National Front. So, um, yeah. Yeah, if there's any doubt about any of our politics <laughs> with this, we, we definitely stand firmly against both the police and any far-right group. The other part of this anecdote um, was, that as, as Doug recalled it, which, you know, in... Now I've read it quite a few times. It does seem very much like an anecdote he told down the path quite a few times. What he says is that there were two of his fellow SDS officers, special demonstration squad officers, outside the pub sitting in a car. So um, a senior officer called Phil Saunders and a sergeant at the time, I think, Ribby Wilson. Right. Were in a car outside the pub and subsequently told him that if, that, if Doug himself was attacked at that point, they would have helped out. Edwards question whether this really would have been the case, which is it has like it's kind of the punchline to an anecdote. So I'm, I'm not entirely clear why, for instance, Phil, Phil Sanders and Ribby Wilson would have been sitting outside in this out in this pub waiting for Doug, unless they had pre-warning. So like, like, a, like a, the meeting was going to be attacked, and in that case, presumably Doug wouldn't have gone to the pub in the first place. So. Like well, a lot I'm, of, I'm a bit unsure about that. Like a lot of things that we hear from the undercover officers, um, it often invites more questions than answers. Uh, these, uh, you get these rare ideas that you might be getting a glimpse of truth, but as Chris has pointed out, maybe we're just seeing yet another layer of, of nonsense. Um, so apart from the, the punch-up with the International Socialists about having a debate with the National Front, um, the rest of his uh, deployment within the ILP is fairly uneventful. Uh, more or less, I mean, yeah, he becomes a treasure, treasurer of Tower Hamlet's branch. I mean, that's again something we see happening later on quite a lot with uh, yeah. other officers. Um, and, and one of the elements of that, of, yeah, officers taking positions of authority or, or at least being involved in decision making. Um, Doug was specifically questioned on this, um, and even though he apparently attended a meeting where there was just three people from the ILP, which seemed to be some kind of executive committee. Doug still was quite firm that he never influenced um, the, the organisation's direction, which be on the other hand that he didn't really explain how he avoided doing so, given the, you know, the tiny numbers of people at these meetings and the fact they voted on a variety of things. I mean, it, it does sound a lot more like something that his lawyers told him to say, um, because he was very done. I never affected the direction of travel. Um, whilst also giving evidence that suggested, of course, he must have been. He was part of a four-person executive group and the treasurer. Um, obviously, you know, all these undercover officers have either had the same lawyer or the same company of lawyers advising them, and all of them have been very clear that they didn't act in any way that could be described as enchant provocateur. Hmm. The truth is somewhere else, but there we are. Yeah, I suppose one of the other things which has become more important since the November hearings is the infiltration of Irish Solidarity Group. This is from his report, this is dated 1969, 12th of August 1969, 10, 10 past 10, it's a telegram, <laughs> so you know. Um, whilst attending to another matter at the Dolphin Public House, what that matter is, we don't know, maybe a pint of ale perhaps, I overheard a meeting of the Irish Civil Rights Solidarity Campaign 
uh, which the decision was made by about 15 to 20 young persons immediately to the immediately to go to the Ulster office in Barclay Street with the intention of causing mischief. The group were in a militant mood and may cause malicious damage. So we're, we're invited to believe that he's found out all this completely by chance. Well, kind of, but it also mentions in this context that um, there was another officer around at that meeting, a guy called Sean Lynch. Well, that was his undercover pseudonym. Um, and he's one of the most interesting officers of that sort of early area, sort of late, late 60s, early 70s of the undercovers, probably Sean Lynch is probably one of the main, the key guys. He was deployed for a long time in, in a large number of groups. Look forward to a future episode on Sean Lynch. Yes, indeed. Um, and Sean Lynch, according to Edwards in his statement, was one of, was his best, one of his best mates, or his best mate within the SDS. Doug claimed there to be some disparity between the written reports we've got uh, with his name on and what he actually reported. Yeah, and he actually went into some detail um, about how the reports were created. Um, to cut a long story short, he, he made it pretty clear that he, he had very little responsibility for the content of those reports, even when some of the, some of the content was based on his intelligence, on his spying. Um, so, I mean, he gave the impression, um, whether this is true or not, but he gave the impression that... Um, other more senior officers within the unit were compiling the reports. Well, yeah, both senior, but also sort of the back office staff, so people of a similar rank to, to Doug, but they were the ones who typed it up mm. or, or, you know, or added other bits of information which weren't available to Doug because they, they were based at Scotland Yard, whereas, of course, the, the Special Demonstration Squad officers who were out in the field, they, they never went to, to, the, to New Scotland Yard. Right. So maybe there's some suggestion that, though we can't, not only can we not trust his oral evidence, that his written evidence, that, that his contemporary written evidence from the time, may be not that truthful either. Well, we're not sure. I mean, there's definitely different accounts from the different officers of who has responsibility or the, the amount of responsibility each individual officers have for those reports. For instance, Peter Fredericks, another undercover who was around at the same time as Doug. I mean, one of the reasons he got he, he, he was given at least why he was sacked was that his report writing wasn't up to scratch. So that seems to give a different impression. How does he withdraw himself from the Independent Labour Party? He just leaves. Um, I think, as he says, he, he wouldn't be missed, I think is his comment. <laughs> right, OK. He gets so, fed up with it and, and leaves, I mean, you know, in short. He, he doesn't have any kind of... Um, Unlike later offices where they had like quite an elaborate and often traumatic stories of why they, mm. they had to exit. Um, yeah, often the extraction would take up to six months, wouldn't it? Okay. Yeah, this is they, they didn't they weren't they didn't have such a developed um, methodology in those days for sure. Right. So, uh, but have we come across anybody who ever met him whilst he was deployed? Not at all. No, not at all. No. I mean, in terms of the of, of not managed to track anybody down who was in the ILP at that time, which isn't surprising. I mean, the ILP were, I think, I think it'd be fair to say a lot of the people old were older in that <laughs> point. West Ham anarchists, I think, potentially, I think, I mean, in the, all the SDS intelligence reports have been published, um, all the individuals' names are being redacted if they are still alive, so... We assume, I can assume, well, we might assume that at least some of them 
are still around, uh, but we've not managed, managed to track anybody down who was actually in the group. I did manage to find somebody who was in the East London Libertarians um, and I spoke to him, but he only could really enlighten me about the, the squatting campaign, obviously, and unsurprisingly, he didn't recall Doug Edwards. So, like, looking back over over Doug Edwards' evidence as a whole, um, what do you think it tells us about the the special demonstration squad and the development of the unit? What does it tell us? I mean, it tells us some, th- some things change and some things stay, stay the same. Um, yeah, as I was saying, the classical intrusion thing that runs through, right, right, not just through the SDS, but through the latest squad, the National Public Intelligence and Audio Unit, MPIOU. Um, other things did change. They became, I guess, a bit, I mean, I use sophisticated advisedly, but in terms of they had much more elaborate um, backstories. They had a sort of longer withdrawal strategy. Um, and I'd say almost immediately, though it wasn't the case in Doug's case, other officers did get much more involved with the groups, much more intimate in terms of um, the way they functioned and more involved, including getting arrested and that kind of thing. Um, so certainly, so like, you know, Doug's only deployed for two years. Um, two and a half years, but half, half six months of that, he would have been in the back office. So right. yeah, it's actual live deployment, so to speak. Yeah, two years. Whereas you know, later on, we're talking about deployments of five years. Well, four years was the standard, but as we know, in some officers' cases, uh, that, that was extended. Mm. But four years, you'd probably say, is like the median. We're recording this now early April 2021. We'll be going back to um, the undercover policing inquiry later on this month for um, tranche one, phase two, um, which will look at officers from 1972 to 1982. That's right, yeah. So perhaps over that period, we'll uh, get an, an idea of when it went from a two year deployment to longer and how other things developed within the unit. Um, there's certainly a great deal left to learn. Whilst we're recording this, we're a couple of weeks away from phase two of tranche one of the undercover policing inquiry. Um, this is going to look at officers from 1972 to 1982. Um, what sort of things do you think we can expect from that, Chris? Uh, well, I suppose to some extent more of the same, but also we see the development of the modus, the modus operandi of the SDS as they infiltrate more and more groups um mm. yeah so i mean one of the things that sh- during the first phase which was uh, 68 to 72 we really got a flavor of what was the major political issues on the streets in of that period um i'm guessing it's likely to be the case for the 70s yeah we're, we're hearing about lots of events you know the, the key i suppose political events that you've probably heard of like um the murder of Blair Peach by 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 the Metropolitan Police by the SPG um, special uh, patrol group. So um, I think Blair's partner at the time, Celia Stubbs, is given evidence. Yeah, um, we also hear about Grunwick strike and um, other less I guess lesser lesser known strikes. Mm. Um, mm. Um, of course, the rise of the National Front and the, the uh, and the, the counter demonstrations anti Nazi League and other militant anti fascist groups. Right, yeah. There's a number of um, deaths, as well as Blair Peach, or other deaths in custody which come around that time. Perhaps those family campaigns as well might be. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And also, yeah, a lot of the, yeah, yeah, the other family, yeah, sort of, yeah, 
If you were involved in um, public order of any sort or any kind of subversion during the um, from 72 to 82, um, I'd really recommend listening out for what is, does end up being covered. I'm sure there'll be lots of things that don't get covered because uh, of the nature of these things. But um, we really, you, know, you, you may find that certain things are mentioned which jog your memory. Um, we'll be covering it in detail, both on Twitter and with daily reports. Um, if you're able to check those out, either live as they're happening or at the end of each day or the end of each week, please do. Um, you can find all of it by just following the hashtag SpyCops on whatever social media you prefer. Please follow us on on Twitter and check us out everywhere else. I'm be found at Tom B Fowler. Chris can be found at uh, Crystal Maple. And if you'd like to check out the more long form articles on this, um, if you go to spycops.info, you'll find links to the Undercover Research Group campaign opposing police surveillance and police spies out of lives. Thanks for joining us.